Every computer today can be looked at as a Turing machine. What are quantum Turing machines? That's our topic today on Mind Matters News. Greetings. I'm Robert J. Marks, and I'm your bellatristic host today on Mind Matters News. We're going to talk about Turing machines. Now, there are so-called specific task Turing machines, to give you a little background, and there's also general purpose Turing machines. One of the most famous specific task Turing machines cracked the Nazi Enigma code that helped win World War II. Uh, Alan Turing was on the team that cracked it at Benchley Park in England, and this is depicted in the movie, I think the name was Imitation Game, with Benedict Cumberbatch starring as Alan Turing. Uh, the Enigma code breaking machine was designed to solve one problem, specifically crack the Enigma code. So the question was, Alan Turing asked, the father of modern computer science, could there be a general Turing machine that could be programmed to simulate all specific tasks, Turing machines? In other words, a Turing machine that could do anything, any algorithm that you wanted. Alan Turing introduced this machine in 1936. And the church Turing thesis says any problem that can be performed on a super-duper modern computer could also be performed on a general Turing machine. It could take, though, a billion times as long. But we're still constrained by that. Quantum computers promise to incredibly increase computing speed and do Turing machine sort of operations. To talk about that is our special guest today, Dr. Paul Werbos. Paul is the inventor of airback propagation, and he served 30 years as the program director at NSF, where he steered some of NSF's programs into quantum research. So, Paul, welcome. Hi. Yeah, let me, I, I want to ask you about David Deutsch. Because sure. he was the guy, I, was he your PhD advisor? No, I, Carl Deutsch was my first. Car, Carl Deutsch, okay. Carl Deutsch. D lots of Deutsches in the world, I guess. So, yeah, they keep coming up. They do. Uh, no relation, I suppose. But David Deutsch, he first proposed the quantum Turing machine. Um, uh, did you know Deutsch at all? I think I had them confused, I, the two Deutsches. Two uh, Deutsches, and, and I uh, run across other Deutsches sometimes. But but um, but yeah, so I mentioned Werbos.com. I have a new link on what is a soul and a new link on sustainable intelligent internet. And we need a new type of internet, sustainable intelligent internet. And on that website, I have links. One of them is to... The quantum view of reality, uh, actually the mind, brain, and soul link. I talk a little bit about reality too. You know, souls are a reality, and and in come to think of it, in that link, I talk about reality and I talk about David Deutsch. I say that David Deutsch, by all rights, should be a face that everybody on the earth knows as much as they owe as they recognize Einstein. I began that YouTube talk on reality with four faces. First is Albert Einstein. And I believe in Einstein's view of reality. I didn't used to believe it, but I've learned a lot about how the math works. I believe that Einstein was basically right, even though it didn't seem like it, about his basic principles. He, he did make mistakes like everybody. And right next to him is David Deutsch. 
I put Einstein and David Deutsch on top. David Deutsch has two great things. So great, everybody should know his name and his face. One of the things is the modern version of the multiverse theory of physics, how the universe really works, according to David Deutsch. I believe that David Deutsch's theory of quantum physics is the best solid mainstream description anybody has of how the universe works. Well, let's talk about that for a minute. I think that there's there's a bunch of different uh, models of quantum quantum mechanics. One is the uh, the Copenhagen model, and another one is the multi-universe sort of idea, which every which means that every time there's a quantum collapse, the two realities split off, and you have you have these different uh, different realities. And I think you're referring to David Deutsch as one who believed in the multi-universe. Yes. Is that right? Multiverse. 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 Thank you. In fact, if you go to YouTube today, you can search on Deutsch multiverse and you get some really neat YouTube videos. So I have to be careful. Everything in science, there are always these caveats. Okay. So Deutsch has a version of how the universe works. Some of it actually started with a guy I met named Hugh Everett and John Wheeler, and I have some corrections to fix up Deutsch's model to make it a little more reliable. Now, Wheeler Wheeler is the one that came up with the it from bit sort of thing. Is that the same Wheeler? Yeah, yeah. He's a creative guy. Boy, I guess so. Creative guys sometimes do more than one thing in their life. John Wheeler of Princeton certainly did a lot of different things yeah. in his life. Yeah, that's him. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay, so, so Everett, Wheeler... Deutsch and my fixes to Deutsch, there is a theory, there's a version of the multiverse theory of physics, which I believe is by far the best mainstream version of how the universe works in existence. But I still believe Einstein was right anyway. Okay. Um, and, and I believe that I can believe both of those things because Einstein himself once said, quantum mechanics probably works because it's a good statistical description, a good statistical approximation of things that are actually more like my kind of theory down underneath. Okay, that's that's the so-called hidden variable model, I believe. Some people phrase it that way, yeah. Okay, the hidden variable. Wasn't that addressed negatively by, I think it was, um, Bell's Inequality? I, I can tell you the name. I know these guys. I knew some of these guys. Okay, so... So we live in this horrible world of fake history. And by coincidence, I had strange luck always to see the real history. So when we talk about Bell's theorem and were hidden variables disproven, the story is worth a few minutes. It started with Einstein. Uh, Einstein, Podolsky, and Rosen said, if you guys, if your Heisenberg theory is true, I predict the following kind of thing with co correlated photons, and, and I don't believe it, we should do the experiment. And that's a very rational thing, but then nobody did the experiment. I think Bell had some papers of ideas, and there were various theorems. And finally, one of my classmates at Harvard, was part of a group of four people who really changed the world. Their names were Richard Holt, Clauser, Holt, Shimoni, and Horn. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and CHSH is their paper. If you look up CHSH, you'll probably get to one of their papers. Now, as it happens, they had like four important papers that year, and I got to see all of them. When I look today on the web, I only see one paper that's cited a lot. I think the other papers were really important too. But basically, the paper that really impressed me when I talked to my classmate over tea was the paper he showed me they just done where they proved a theorem. They said, if you have two entangled photons, if Einstein's kind of theory is true, the results will be in one region, but quantum mechanics predicts a different result, we can discriminate which is true by doing this experiment. Yeah, just a little bit of background. The, the hidden variable model, see if I get this right, Paul. The uh, hidden variable model says that, yes, we have this model of quantum mechanics and we treat things as probabilities, but there's something happening deeper underneath that is going to explain it. And uh, this was the theory which was adopted by Einstein and Rosen and them. Is that pretty well the, uh, the idea behind, behind the hidden variable? Okay, so this is where words get screwed up in science. Okay. And discussions of reality and consciousness and God. My God, do people do weird things with words. Um, my first language was mathematics, not English. And if I relied totally on English, <laughs> I would be totally confused. Paul, you're bilingual. That's good. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I had a friend from Nigeria. I, I was saying, yeah, I speak English as a second language. <laughs> <You know>? Okay. <laughs> Um, and, and that made a big difference. Um, but yeah, hidden variable, I don't use the term very often because people have really played games with those kind of words. But I do know what Einstein's point of view really was. And I do know that Einstein changed his views from one year to the next. But the core vision of Albert Einstein which I've slightly altered, I call hardcore Einstein realism. And in my old age, I have come to the conclusion, yeah, I believe in hardcore Einstein realism. But somebody would say, well, what the hell is it that you believe? I don't believe every word Einstein ever said. He said some pretty funny words. What is Einstein realism? Okay, so so in that webpage, Mind, Souls, Brains, I have a link to a YouTube talk on reality. Actually, you could probably search on a Werbos reality on YouTube, probably would get there. I don't know. And in that talk, talking about reality, I start with a question you might appreciate, Bob. Okay. How can you believe in hardcore objective reality like Einstein or Ayn Rand or Lenin and also believe we have a soul and a spirit and a spiritual destiny and they are real. Well, I think that boils down to your philosophy, whether you're, uh, there's lots of, uh, there's lots of theories which divide that question and which give you different answers. One of the things that we're looking at right now is at the Bradley center is a so-called mind brain problem and whether the mind is the same as the brain. And there's lots of emerging evidence through something called Leibniz experiment and near-death experiences, et cetera, which kind of illustrate that there's parts of the mind which are not resident in the brain. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that 
Okay. Heretical bottom line that you just stated. Okay. Okay. Well, that's good. Okay. It took me a long time to face up to reality and to face up to the fact that reality is not as simple as it seems. Well, also, the thing is, in mathematics, as you know, Paul, there's lots of things which are uh, unknowable. Uh, You can prove things that exist, and you can also prove that they're unknowable. And you wonder if if this applies to things such as consciousness in terms of a global understanding of what is going on. Boy, would I love to talk about that a little further. But but bottom line is the talk starts simple with Albert Einstein and goes from there to David Deutsch and hardcore Einstein realism. I don't even know if Einstein used the term hidden variables. I know he used terms like Lagrange-Euler equations and, and Minkowski space. Um, but so there's that view of reality. But David Deutsch's theory is much more a mainstream theory. And one of the pieces of work I am proud of, frankly, I am the one who developed the mathematics which best connects Einstein's assumptions with what we see in the David Deutsch statistics. So at one point, Einstein said, I think you could deduce the Schrodinger equation from the statistics of my fields. And Norbert Wiener tried to do it. And he failed. I read his papers. They just didn't do it. He tried hard. Really? Norbert Wiener, you know, for our our listening audience, is the founder. And in fact, he coined the word cybernetics, right? Yes, that's right. He's a very respectable guy. He couldn't solve this problem. And that's why I decided, you know, maybe I won't do this for my PhD thesis. Maybe it's a little too hard. It doesn't guarantee I'll graduate. I'll work on it after I graduate. So I did. And I finally figured out how to solve it. It took a long time. The papers are very heavy mathematics. They're not very well known. Some of them are new. But the bottom line is, um, I think that David Deutsch's approximation is the best that we have in mainstream science. It has been tested in quantum computing applications much more than all of these philosophical interpretations you read about. There are a million philosophical interpretations about what quantum mechanics should be. But David Deutsch's version of quantum multiverse technology, that's the one that has been used in the experiments, billions of dollars all over the world trying to make quantum technology. Oh, everybody's in a race to do quantum computing. So, So the quantum computing is based on David Deutsch's theory of quantum Turing machines. And that theory has been tested empirically at a level that these philosophers would not even dream of. The mm-hmm. empirical work that's gone into quantum information science, huge, it's by far the best empirical theory we have today of how quantum mechanics really works. Here's a question that I have for you, Paul. Um, and I don't know the answer to this. Turing's Enigma machine did one operation, right? It, it was designed to crack the Enigma code. In quantum computing, if you take a graduate class or an undergraduate class in quantum computing, you're introduced to things like Shor's algorithm, which does cryptology, and Grover's algorithm, which do search. These remind me of special purpose Turing machines that are designed to do one operation. And the thing I don't understand is Deutsch's, um, is his proposal to simulate a general purpose quantum computing machine. Turing machine. Yes. There are two pieces of work 
that I cite. Deutsch has done many things in his life, but whenever I got to be brief, there are always two things I cite from David Deutsch that everybody should know about. And one of them is the multiverse stuff. He has Mm -hmm. a book and videos. And the other one is the quantum Turing machine. He has one well-cited, many other papers, proving the universal quantum Turing machine. So the concept of a universal quantum Turing machine that's more universal than the old Turing machine, his theorem, his mathematics, his concept, and his design, his vision. So so David Deutsch is a truly great person, but I need to be careful. Okay. Why do you need to be careful? Okay. Because... David Deutsch's vision of what is a universal quantum Turing machine, there's an analogy to Turing's vision of the universal Turing machine, yes? And you and I both know that Turing's vision of a universal Turing machine is not really the most universal thing you can do because it assumes binary type variables. And we know there's a thing called neural networks, And in fact, there's a paper I cite a lot by Siegelman and Sontag. Uh, There are other papers and people debate which is the best paper. I don't want to get into that kind of fight. But I often cite the paper by Siegelman and Sontag. And the basic idea, just in the classical world, forgetting the quantum world, in the classical world, the full power of analog neural network type architecture It's like a whole level beyond what a Turing machine can do. So I think of the Turing machine as Aleph zero, the simple infinity, the countable infinity. And I think of the theorems of Sontag and Siegelman and other people as Aleph one computing, a continuum which is a much bigger infinity than Aleph zero. Yeah, the the, the Aleph zero, Aleph... um is, for example, the counting numbers, and it, it, is, it is a smaller infinity than the number of points on the interval from zero right. and one. This was pioneered yeah. by George Cantor, if I remember. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's the counter sequence. So now, bottom line, there is a paper in the journal Quantum Information Processing by Werbos and Dolmatova. Could you spell that last name, please? D O L. M-A-T-O-V-A. So in that paper, which has a very interesting history and has an updated version, I say, look, Deutsch showed add quantum entanglement, add the big cats, the Schrodinger cats, and you go from one way of all F0 to all F1. That's basically what David Deutsch did with the Turing machine. I see. Do it another way, you go from all F0 to all F1. Do both of them, you can get to all F2 or all F3. Well, all F2, by the way, I've heard described as all of the scribbles and shapes that you can draw on a sheet of paper. And I okay. believe that all of three or higher is something which is beyond our comprehension. It's like a fourth spatial dimension or a fifth spatial dimension. Well, it, it's... But believe it or not, I hate to say it, it's not beyond my comprehension. Okay, good. <laughs> because because there is this paper. In fact, maybe I should even be more precise. The the updated version of the paper I posted at werbos.com slash triphoton.pdf. T-R-I-P-H-O-T-O-N dot P-D-F. Okay. 
And basically that includes a roadmap for how to get past the quantum Turing machine to basically four more levels beyond that. And what do you think you can do with these higher level Turing machines that you can't do with Turing's original machine? Yeah. Well, I I might call these (laughs) post-Turing, but uh, what can we do? Uh, uh, To begin with, a lot. Also, it's the hardest math I've ever worked on in my life, and that is saying something. Well, one of the things one of the things classically a Turing machine can't do is things like the halting problem. Yeah. If you could come up with an ALIF-1 or ALIF-2 sort of machine to solve the halting problem, that would be an incredibly big deal. So just two months ago, I put out a plan for how you could build what I call a quantum annealing of things and what you can do with it. And I view that as an example of a third generation quantum technology. Everything the U.S. government is funding today is pretty much the first generation. It's all the quantum Turing machine. It's all the first generation. We had a leader for the Quantum Information Sciences Coordinating Group who was looking beyond the first generation. And he invited me to a big meeting in Baltimore in 2015 He was going to announce these new directions, but he died mysteriously. And there were only four people who were left of the plan he had to talk. One Indian, one Chinese, me, and a contractor. Okay, Paul, you need to hire some personal (laughs) protection here, don't you? No joke. So at any rate, uh, so at least since then, so far as I know, the U.S. government has pretty much focused on the quantum Turing machine. The more advanced generations, there is stuff in other countries, but not in the U.S. You know, Austin Egbert, who's our director, pointed out that you talked about quantum annealing. This is something being, I think, pursued by a company called D-Wave. Are you up on that? Absolutely. Okay. Are you impressed with what they're doing? Well, it, it, it turns out that I have, I think, a whole YouTube talk on quantum annealing, and it's certainly in the website that I sent you where I just this year came up with a plan. Now, in my original vision in the Triphoton paper, I described five generations of quantum computing, some of which are pretty hard to understand, frankly. And then what I did this year was I said, okay, why don't we try to do something simple? A friend of mine had an application in mind that had to do with astronomy. He said, can't you do better in this application? I said, you know, maybe I could use D-Wave. That's only third generation, but that third generation could be used to solve your problem in looking at the sky. And I got very excited by it. In fact, I even was talking to a friend of ours, you know, Don Wunsch. Oh, yeah. um, In Missouri. I was even trying to talk to his people. Hey, maybe we should try to get some IP because I have an idea how to use a D-Wave to solve this astronomy problem. I get a brush of greatness claim here. Don Wunsch was my PhD student, so... Ah. Okay, well, he's the future of NSF may depend a lot on him, actually. He, he, does, he does great, incredible things. You know, I'm proud of him like a father. So Great. Okay, well, I, I, uh, he is facing some pretty heavy challenges, but he also has some exciting opportunities. When I think about whether we will build back better, a lot of my hopes do involve Don. But God, is he facing a lot of heavy stuff. Well, again, I think as we talked in previous podcasts, when you come up with innovation, there's always an inertia, a resistance to That's that. That's an understatement. Yeah. yeah. Have I learned about that? But, but let me come back. So I was really excited. And then I studied D-Wave more. 
I studied the other stuff more than D-Wave. D-Wave was, eh, it's just third generation. I was more interested in the fifth. But I decided, okay, if we have a quick and dirty application that's really exciting, let's get the IP on how to use D-Wave. And then I got a friend from Canada, and he spoke to the D-Wave people, and I got a literature survey on D-Wave like you wouldn't believe. It's a gigantic literature from all directions. But basically what I found out is that D-Wave annealing is not true quantum annealing. D-Wave has real markets. It has real clients. It has useful tools that will forever be useful. It's got a big market. It's an important player. But at the center of its box, it does not have what I call a true quantum annealing box. So what I have posted this year are directions for how do you build a true quantum annealing box and how can you use it for applications D-Wave hasn't even thought of yet. Let's uh, let, let's go down a little rabbit trail here and explain what annealing is. Good. As I understand it, uh, the, the term comes from metallurgy. And the idea is how you cool down a molten metal to get optimal properties. Yeah. And if you cool it down just right, slow enough, you get a really good metal. If you do it too quickly, it's bad. The great example I've heard of is ice cubes. If you start with yeah. water and you freeze ice cubes real quickly, you get cracks in your ice cube. Whereas if you slowly lower the temperature, you get nice, clear ice cubes. Beautiful. Now, isn't, that, isn't that a nice, uh, nice explanation? It, it, it is beautiful. And in my explanation... For why D-Wave is great, but they don't have what they need for the greatest power. You know, they have a real market and a real product, but you can do a hell of a lot better. And the reason why they're not doing the best you could do is the people who design their system don't really understand what you just said. Okay. 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 They don't understand what you just said. With true annealing, and, and, and one reason I was able to figure this out is I knew about annealing, right? You're not the only one who's learned about it. I know what real annealing is. We should say in, in, in machine learning, annealing corresponds to adding a lot of noise in the beginning and, yeah. and then slowing down the uh, noise. The more noise, the greater the temperature, the greater the shaking noise. So that's the, that's the translation. Go ahead, Paul. Okay, the truth is, I, I have learned about annealing from three sources. One of them is the stuff I just learned about D-Wave in the past year. The other one was the metallurgy and solid state physics stuff that I knew about from other engineering applications. Uh, it's not only metallurgy, it's also solar cells, to be honest. I learned about it from solar cells. And in addition, there is what you just mentioned. There's something called the Metropolis algorithm. So in pe people who do numerical algorithms know about a kind of annealing algorithm used by, for this metropolis kind of stochastic search. And that's the one I know the least about, ironically. <laughs> okay, let's back up. Let's back up a second. What's the big deal about quantum annealing, which in my cursory understanding uh, involves things like quantum tunneling and stuff. But what is, what is the effect of quantum annealing and why is it such a big deal? And why is D-Wave interested in annealing? We all know about quantum computers and, and the fact you do all of these operations in parallel. But what about the quantum annealing and why are we interested in that? Okay, so... Again, we have to be really careful with words in this business because D-Wave sells a box, which is useful and it does something. And in my recent paper, when I had to be really precise, 
I called it DQUA, D-wave type quantum annealing. And what I'm proposing is a different technology, which I'm calling true quantum annealing, TQUA. And there are three generations that you can build. The basic concept of true quantum annealing, my kind of quantum annealing, is basically following the vision that David Deutsch applied to digital computing. And, and, and so maybe I should explain a little bit about what David Deutsch's vision is. Okay. It starts with a cat. Uh, everything really important may start with a cat. Like Schrodinger's cat, right? Exactly that cat. And I've spent a lot of years learning about that cat. It's a very important cat. Um, <laughs> but we're not sure whether it's alive or dead. Right? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's some politicians like that, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, zing! Okay. But I'll, I'll resist. It's a big and real subject. It's not a joke, really. It's, it's real. But, but coming back to this cat, um, most people probably need a refresher on what the real story is with Schrodinger's cat. Schrodinger, de Broglie, and Einstein all believed the beauty of their new quantum field way of thinking over the old particle-based Lorentz physics. Lorentz believed in particles and matter, and all there is is force fields in Einstein's space. De Broglie, Schrodinger, and, and uh, Einstein were pretty much of the same school. And then came this Heisenberg guy, and Schrodinger, Einstein, and de Broglie couldn't believe half the things that Heisenberg said. And at some point, they realized the Geiger counter is sort of a quantum mechanical phenomenon, stochastic quantum mixed state thing. And so Schrodinger proposed this experiment. He said, okay, put a cat in a closet, point a gun at its head, have a Geiger counter control it with a timer so that it runs for three hours, and set the numbers so that quantum mechanics predicts precisely a 50% probability that the cat's brain gets shot out and a 50% probability nothing happens. That's the basic experiment. Oh, and the experimenter leaves the room, locks the door. Schrodinger said, the reason why you're crazy, Heisenberg, is because your crazy theory predicts the following. It predicts that as soon as you turn on this machine, the cat gets put into a mixed state so that half the cat is alive, half the cat is dead, and it still doesn't make up its mind even after the timer stops. It's sitting there half dead, half alive, and it doesn't change until the human opens the door and looks at it. And by the act of looking at the cat, you make it be alive or dead. Isn't that dumb, said Schrodinger. And that was also where Einstein's EPR experiment came from, was this sort of idea. However, EPR is sorry, Einstein, Podolsky, Rosen. Oh, okay, which, that was that, that was their thesis about hidden yeah, variables. Okay, p people call it Bell's theorem because it was done by CH and SH about Einstein. They liked Bell; he was their friend. Yes, uh, he you know he wrote a nice popular book, and it was a good book. But but um, but the actual theorem is different from any theorem that Bell ever published. It's a totally different theorem. And the implications are very different and very important. But, um, but yeah, they did the experiment and the, the cat, will it, is it alive or is it dead? The bottom line is 
Einstein lost his debate on the EPR experiment. The experiment disagreed with his intuition. But that doesn't mean he was wrong in his whole theory. That's why you have to get rid of part of his ideas, but not all of them. The key thing, in that experiment, David Deutsch has a different explanation for what happens. He said, okay, you shoot the Geiger counter, you can put a cat in a mixed state. You can generate a Schrodinger cat. You can generate a macroscopic object in a mixed state. You can split the universe into two parts and, and it's alive in one and dead in the other. And when you open the door, you connect yourself to the cat. So there are two of you and the universe has split bigger. So there's one of you that sees a dead cat and there's another one of you that sees the live cat. And that's the multiverse. Man, if that's true, Paul, there's a lot of parallel universes, man. Absolutely. I didn't believe that for many years. I was an ultra conservative. I, I read the work of a famous guy named Tony Leggett, who argued that somehow there must be a way out of this. Maybe quantum entanglement breaks down with distance. And there have been thousands of experiments on oh, this. Yeah, yeah. And they all prove there are macroscopic Schrodinger cats. And that was David Deutsch's idea. He said, if you can put a cat in a mixed state, you can put a computer chip in a mixed state. And if you have enough leverage, instead of making two copies of the same chip in different states, you can make a million copies. Well, that's the foundation of quantum computing, right? Exactly. That's mm -hmm. what it is. It's quantum entanglement. It's herding cats. You got a million Schrodinger cats, if not a trillion Schrodinger cats all at once, all doing different jobs, and then you put it together at the end, and it's parallel processing. Yeah, but, 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 but the trick I understand is making a collapse to the correct solution, or in the multiverse case, making sure you're in the right multiverse. Uh, how, how do you assure that? Well, yeah, there, there is this, it's like defalsification. But, but let me come back, though, to the, to the point, if, forgive me if I, if I go back to the, where I was heading. Um, what Deutsch did was he showed that our old ideas of Turing computing can be generalized by making a programmable computer which runs a million programs on a million copies of the same chip in parallel. That, that's the core idea. And I, I just want to go that far right now. Sure. The thing is, though, it still is like a computer. It's like our concept of a classic Turing machine. You write a program, you hire programmers. The U.S. government has hired so many programmers to try to come up with good programs to make quantum computers do something. Mm -hmm. And that's where Shore comes into it because he came up with the first program that you could run to factor large numbers that just happen to be the critical thing you use for old style polynomial key coding with cryptography. There's a lot these guys don't know because they live in their little ivory towers. There's a lot of stuff they don't know about this stuff. And where to begin? Um, well, we started with D-Wave and the idea was, well, okay, instead of what if we are not trying to run a computer program? What if we define our task differently? What if we're trying to solve an optimization problem? That's the obvious thing you would want to do with annealing. So what if you want to build a box 
where you still have a million Schrodinger cats running around at the same time, and you want to do the quantum mechanics such that the cat which survives is the one you want. And that gets to your final ending, decoherence kind of stuff. Yes. Right. You want the cat you want to survive. You want the others to lose. If you know the physics, this is an obvious answer how you do that. You're using energy to represent what you want. You're mapping into a minimization problem. If you want lower energy, if you want to do annealing, in physics, what you do is you shed heat to your environment and you equilibrate to a state of low energy. That's how the physics works. These guys were not physicists. And so they didn't even consider the possibility of doing it that way. So instead of shedding energy to the environment, which is what my specification calls for, they just circle around in the environment they're in. And they, they adjust coupling coefficients, but they don't dissipate energy. It's entirely within the box. And they're entirely right that the minute you connect outside the box, you make life more complicated. But sometimes that's what you absolutely have to do if you want to get results. If you want a quantum computer that works, sometimes you need a cold environment. Same damn thing with a true quantum annealing. And you got to worry about, is the environment cold enough? Can you shed energy to it? But the bottom line is, if you design the box to do true annealing, where you're shedding energy to your environment, it's obvious to the right kind of physicist. But I read that literature and it wasn't obvious to any of them because they were all busy doing other stuff. Wow. I, I was kind of amazed when I discovered, my God, this is like the guy who leaves a $20 bill on the floor. You know? <laughs> I'll pick it up if I can. So, Paul, you're going you're gonna to supply us a lot of links to some of this literature so that we can put them on the podcast notes, right? Yeah, to true, true quantum annealing. Okay, excellent, excellent. We're out of time, and but I wanted to thank you, Paul, for your time you've spent with us. We've been talking to Paul Werbos. He's the inventor of the most commonly used technique to train artificial neural networks in the world, error backpropagation. And he's also doing some pioneering work in quantum computing, which is going to be the future of the world if we can ever get coherence, I guess. So thanks for listening. Until next time, be of good cheer. This has been Mind Matters News with your host, Robert J. Marks. Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.